So as I said, uh, we've seen Christ uh, undergo a mock trial by the chief priests and to be presented to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, because it was the Romans, uh, the Roman authorities who had authority to put people to death, not the Jewish council. And so they take him to Pilate, uh, saying they say that Jesus is worthy of death. And Pilate can't find anything wrong with him, but the crowd is so insistent, and the chief priests are so insistent, that in the end, Pilate says, have your way. And he releases Christ to be, or delivers him to be crucified. And we read what happened next in verse 16. It says, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Uh, I never really noticed that detail before until reading it this last week, uh, that it says they called together the whole garrison. And I wondered how big was a garrison uh, in these days? And there's no clear answer, um, but the best estimates are that uh, in Jerusalem at this time, the garrison could have been anything from 150 to 300 men. Uh, 150 to 300 soldiers all gathered together uh, to mock Christ. Uh, you can imagine what a mob like that would look like. And we read what they do in verse 17. It says, They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. I'm sure you can see the theme with all these abuses, abuses of the soldiers. Uh, they've heard from the chief priests and the crowd that Jesus has been claiming to be a king, and that is his charge. And so they think it would be great fun to pick up on this and to mock him. And so they plait a crown of thorns and they place it on his head. But it would probably be better to say they ram it on his head because they're not going to be doing it gently. And they mock him by making him a crown because he is a king. Uh, they dress him in a purple robe. Uh, it was the wealthy, it was the rich who would wear purple. And so, well, here's a king, let's dress him in purple as they bow down and worship him, mocking him. Uh, we're told, actually, that they strike him round the head with a reed. And in the other Gospels, we're told that that reed is what they put in his hand as a mockery of a scepter. Uh, a, uh, a king ruling with his scepter. And they would bow to him with a reed in one hand and a crown of thorns and this purple robe. And in all these different ways, they are ridiculing and mocking him, saying he is the king of the Jews. The irony, of course, is that that is precisely who he is. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole universe. And yet, remarkably, Christ stays silent. Uh, who of us would stay silent in the face of such ironic mockery? But Jesus endures it. 
And we're told in verse 20, when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. But then we come across an interesting, um, unusual perhaps verse. It says in verse 21, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. Uh, Jesus, by this point, has been whipped. He's been scourged, which is worse than whipping. Uh, My understanding is it would be whipping, but with the thongs of the lash, uh, oftentimes um, little bits of metal or glass would be tied to the ends of the whip, which would cut and dig deeper into the skin. Uh, We've read that he's been scourged already. He's been beaten by the soldiers. He's... Uh, lost a significant amount of blood in all likelihood. He's bruised, he's battered, and it seems he's unable to carry the crossbar of the cross himself. Uh, The upright of the cross was already at Golgotha. That would have already been put in place, but the condemned criminals would have to carry the crossbar, the bit their hands were nailed to. They would have to carry that up the hill, but Jesus, it seems, is too weak to do that. Uh, It may also be this is just another mockery of the soldiers, because what does a king need? Well, a king needs a servant. So they find this man, uh, Simon of Cyrene, and he's just passing by, it says. He's got nothing to do with it. But they compel him to carry Christ's cross so that at least he can get to the point of execution but apart from that we're told very little about this man Simon of Cyrene and you might ask well why does Mark include this detail in the gospel Um, it it doesn't really add anything we we understand the mockery we understand the pain Uh, why does Mark want us to know about Simon And I believe there's at least three things that we can potentially learn from this man, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Lessons for us to learn uh, about ourselves, but most importantly about God and Christ. And the first thing just to mention is that Cyrene was uh, a place in what is now modern day Libya, which is North Africa. Uh, If you go to Egypt and then travel west, uh, you will hit, hit Libya. And that is where Cyrene was. And Simon quite possibly could have been a Jew. Simon is a Jewish name. And he was probably traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, He may not have heard of Christ. He may not have known anything about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. But he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he finds himself in the middle of this situation. But Mark includes this detail. And the first thing we can learn from this detail, which Mark includes, is that this verse is a mark of Mark's authenticity. Uh, This verse is a statement of authenticity. Because much of this verse seems kind of pointless. Did you notice what it said? Uh, It says, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And if you're anything like me, you think, who's Alexander and Rufus? Uh, 
who are these people? They're not mentioned before, and they're not mentioned after. They're just two incidental figures mentioned as the children of Simon of Cyrene, who only gets this mention in the whole of the Bible anyway. But the reason Mark mentions them is most likely because, although they're not known to us, living 2,000 years later, they were almost certainly known to the readers that Mark was originally writing to. So when Mark mentions here that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, he expects his readers to say, oh, Alexander, Rufus, we know them. This is their father. Uh, Interestingly, actually, if you read Paul's letter to the Romans, read chapter 15 at the very end, uh, Paul mentions a character called Rufus. And that's interesting, and you have to track with me here. Hopefully you can follow this. Uh, but that's interesting because if you remember what we looked at, at first, in First Peter last week, at the end of First Peter, Peter says he's writing from Rome, which is where this man Rufus was, according to Romans chapter 15, which Paul writes. And Peter says that he and Mark greets those he's writing to, from Rome. So in other words, Peter and Mark, who wrote this gospel, were in Rome. And in Rome at the same time was a man called Rufus, according to the book of Romans. I hope that logic, you can keep track of that. And so it's, if not certain, it's likely that Alexander and Rufus were there in the church at Rome. And Mark knows them. And those who Mark is writing to originally know them. And what Mark is in essence saying is, this is true. You can check for yourself. You can talk to Alexander. You can talk to Rufus. They're there. They're there with you. And you can check the veracity of what I am saying. This verse makes no sense if this is just a legend, a myth built up over the years. It makes a lot of sense if it's written as an eyewitness testimony or a record of eyewitness testimony about real people in a real time and a real place. So that's the first thing we learn from this verse. Perhaps the least important, but important nonetheless. It's a statement of Mark's authenticity. It shows us that this is an eyewitness account of real people who were really there, who really saw what Mark is speaking of. But there are more important things to learn as well. And the second thing we learn is that Simon here is a picture or a model to us of what the Christian life is like. And let me read the verse again. Verse 21, it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his, that's Jesus' cross. Essentially, if you read the same account in Luke's gospel, it says that Simon followed Christ 
follow Jesus bearing his cross. And when Mark's writing this here, uh, he's expecting us to have read the previous 14 chapters of Mark. Uh, Often because the way we read the Bible, that's not always the case. We sort of decide to read this morning Mark 15 and we don't necessarily remember what Mark has written before. But perhaps you remember from previous messages what Mark said earlier in Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, Mark wrote these words. He said, When Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it later to the rich young ruler, again in Mark's gospel. Uh, The rich young ruler wants eternal life. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, to cut a long story short, says to him at the end, he says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus repeatedly makes clear that in following him or following him involves taking up the cross. Just like those condemned criminals, like Christ himself here, had to carry that crossbar up the hill to the place of crucifixion, Christ says that's what it's like to follow him. And in this way, Simon, who perhaps not at this time, may not have been a believer, but we can hope, based on what we said about Alexander and Rufus, we can hope he became a believer. He's a little picture for us of what it is like to follow Christ. Uh, Mark tells us that Simon was just passing by. He wasn't deliberately there for a particular purpose, but he's called, he's compelled I think many of us can probably relate to that. We may have been living our life, going our own way, doing our own thing, and then Christ comes, and our life is turned upside down. Uh, We're put on a different course. We're pointed in a different direction, and he's compelled to carry the cross. It's important to make clear, though, Simon wasn't crucified, Simon carried the cross, but it was Christ who was crucified. And there's a lesson in there for us. Only Jesus can pay the price for sin. Only Jesus is capable of paying the price for our sin. Only he could do that. Only he could go to the cross and be crucified and pay the atonement for our sin. But the Bible does make clear that as we follow Christ, we identify with him. And we too will have to carry a cross. Not for our salvation, but because the servant isn't greater than his master. That's exactly what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. Verse 18, uh, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As we walk the path which Christ walked, as we follow in his footsteps, we will receive some of the suffering that Christ himself received. Not what Christ paid on the cross. Only he could do that, and he did that for us, that we would not have to. Nevertheless, through life, we will have tribulation as we identify with Christ. Uh, Peter wrote something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Peter said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter says it shouldn't surprise us when we have to undergo suffering similar though not the same as Christ endured. We can rejoice at what Christ has done for us while also being aware that as we follow him, we too will have to suffer a degree of persecution. And Simon teaches us that or shows us that. If you want to see what the Christian life is like, look at Simon of Cyrene as he followed Christ up the mountain as Christ was to be crucified. So that's the second thing we learn from this verse. It's a model for us. It's a picture of what following Christ looks like. But there's a third and last thing I think we can learn from this verse. Uh, We can see something of the compassion of God the Father. Uh, We can see something of the compassion of God the Father. Uh, We've seen this verse is a mark of Mark's authenticity. We've seen that it's a picture of the Christian life. But it also teaches us of the compassion of God the Father. You might think that sounds a bit strange. Uh, What do we see of compassion in this verse? There's a very interesting verse later on in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. In Hebrews there, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, while he was on earth, he prayed to his father with supplication and with vehement cries. And in all likelihood, he's referring to Gethsemane. When in Gethsemane, Christ sweat drops of blood as he knew he had to face the cross. And he cried out with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And Jesus cried out to his father. And the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus was heard because of his godly fear. You might say, well, hold on. 
No, he wasn't. Jesus prayed for the cup to, be par- to pass from him, but God the Father said, essentially, no. It has to happen this way. Salvation is not possible unless you go to the cross. And yet, Hebrews tells us, God heard him. In what sense did God hear Christ's prayer? And I think in part, we're given the answer actually in Mark's gospel. I think it was in Mark's gospel, or in one of the gospels. I should have checked it up. But as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he's praying to the Father, uh, we're told that an angel came and strengthened him. An angel came and strengthened him. God heard his prayer, and although he didn't remove the suffering, although he didn't remove what Christ, to some extent or another, desired to be removed... Nevertheless, he heard the prayer and he sent an angel to strengthen him. There's a good lesson in there for us. Uh, Sometimes we can pray vehemently to God for him to remove something. But he can answer our prayer and yet still not remove the thing we want him to remove. He may answer our prayer by strengthening us, by helping us in the trial, helping us as we carry the cross. He may not remove the cross, but he may give us strength to carry the cross. And that's what I believe is happening in part here. Uh, Christ is at his lowest, or he's not at his lowest point yet, that came later. But he's at a very low point where he can't even seemingly get to the point of his crucifixion, which must happen for the salvation of the world. And God, in his mercy, provides Simon to help him bear the cross up to the top of the hill. Again, Simon cannot bear the cross alone. He cannot take on the weight of the wrath of God for people's sin. Simon cannot do that. But he can help Christ up the mountain. And we see the compassion of God as he strengthens Christ for this task. And we can take heart from that as we carry a much lesser cross. Uh, For us, it's not the salvation of the world we carry. It's not the uh, sins of all God's people that we have to carry. But for us, it might be a difficult financial situation. Uh, It might be ongoing ill health. Uh, It might be some difficult family situation which never seems to get any better. Uh, Fill in the blank with whatever your cross is. God may not remove that cross from you but he can give you strength to carry it. And he will often bring others alongside you who will help you carry the cross, help you carry it, as it were, up the mountain. 
we see how God provided Simon to help carry Christ's cross. But you might say, but we can't do what Simon did here. Uh, How can we help Christ carry his cross? That's done, that's over, that's finished. Uh, And in a sense, we can't. But in another sense, we can. Uh, Do you remember what Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats? Uh, He taught how at the end of time on Judgment Day, uh, God will separate, or Christ will separate uh, the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will be on his right hand and the goats on his left. And we're told what the king, what Christ will say to those on his right hand He will say, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then he says, and the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. In other words, Christ looks at the way we treat other believers And he sees the way we treat them as being done to him. Uh, We see that later in the book of Acts when Paul is on his way uh, persecuting the church. And uh, on the road to Damascus, he sees the blinding light and he hears Christ say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? Jesus had long gone back to heaven by the time Paul was on the scene. Nevertheless, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because what is done to his people, Christ sees as done to himself. So we do have the opportunity to bear the cross of Christ. Uh, Insofar as we can bear the burdens of his people. And as we help one another to endure the difficult financial situation or the uh, unchanging family dynamic, which is not getting any better, or that ongoing ill health, which saps you of energy, as we help our brothers and sisters in this, we are, as it were, helping Christ himself because we are looking after his people. And in that way, we can, in a very small, shadowy way, be similar to Simon of Cyrene here. So I trust those few thoughts uh, are helpful uh, as we meditate on this obscure, uh, in many ways insignificant character in the Bible. But let's see how this verse can teach us, first of all, of the authenticity of the gospel. It's about real people, at a real time, in a real place. But secondly, let's take it as a model, a model for us as we seek to follow Christ 
Let's remember that we must take up our cross as we follow him. But lastly, let's see it as an exhortation for us to be a comfort to others, to help carry their cross, whatever it might be. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen uh, as our last hymn, number 700. Uh, Number 700 in the hymn book. And it's a hymn which picks up on that thought of Simon Cyrene here being a picture, a model for us as we follow Christ. Number 700, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. And particularly the last verse where it says, O let me see thy footmarks and in them plant mine own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength alone. O guide me, call me, draw me, uphold me to the end, and then in heaven receive me, my saviour and my friends. Let's stand to sing in closing number 700.